Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm recording this show from home again today. It's been good to find creative ways over all the apps to chat with authors and hear how they're weathering the new restrictions. I hope all of you are doing well and, like me, finding ways to stay hopeful and connected and, of course, seeking solace in a good book when you can. An enormous thanks to all the Triple R staff working tirelessly to weather the new world we've woken up in, helping volunteer broadcasters stay safe and keeping Triple R on the air. An especially big shout out to Talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. Thanks, Elizabeth, for all you do to help me get this show on air. We'd be lost without you. So it's a good time to remind you that April's subscriber amnesty is happening right now. Our theme, Your Station in Isolation. With the changes the epidemic has brought, your favourite station needs you now more than ever. We're committed to keep bringing you great content and supporting local artists. So, if you can afford to, why not subscribe to keep our heart beating? Head to rrr.org.au forward slash subscribe or rrr.org.au forward slash donate and give what you can, if you can. And if you want to spread the word, tag us on your socials, hashtag your station in isolation. And I've got a couple of great guests on the show today. A lonely Yowie heads to a desperate and dateless ball. Bruce, a shark, somehow ends up in a local swimming pool. Strange creatures drop to earth and demand an end to footy. Wayne Marshall's fantastical collection of short stories skewers toxic masculinity, jingoism and nationalism. It turns the world upside down in a way that's incredibly apt in the time of a pandemic. I spoke with Wayne about his collection this morning and I'll be playing that interview for you soon. Also on the show, she's been a critic for two decades, turning a sharp eye on the work of others. But her first love was poetry. After her marriage broke down, she once again found her poetic voice, processing her life as it changed, loss, desire, parenthood, friendship, and a fierce love of language. The result is the aptly named collection, Turbulence, and Twee joins me to talk about the collection very soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. She's been a book and theatre critic for two decades, but a tumultuous life event led her back to her first love, poetry. Now she's published her first collection of poetry with a name for our times, Turbulence. I spoke with Twee On about her collection, the craft behind it, and the events that sparked it. Twee On, welcome to your backstory. Thank you, Mel. Now, uh, you and I are friends, so I have actually been lucky enough to see the process uh, or a little bit of the process behind you starting to uh, go into becoming 
more of a writer of poetry and then developing enough of a catalogue of poetry to create a book. But reading through this uh, this incredible book that was the outcome of your, you know, incredible prolific uh, poetry writing, I'm really struck by how you've managed to sort of collect everything into a sort of thematic uh, arc. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you started writing poetry, uh, the things that sparked it, and then we'll talk a little bit about how you put this collection together. I actually was a poet, I think, about 15, 20 years ago. I, I did very sort of very few poems, though. I wasn't, it wasn't a form that I took all that much seriously. So I did a couple of poems, got a couple published, and then I sort of ignored it because my life at that stage was was all about, I think I became a, an arts journalist, so I wrote about other people's words and I became completely, I think, preoccupied and caught up in being an, an arts journalist. And so I, I literally lost my, my poetic voice and it didn't really come back, oh, I say about 15, 20 years later. And... There were two sparks that, that prompted the writing of Turbulence and one of that was, was my marriage failing. It was very, very ill for a long time and when it finally died, I was just so, I don't know, I think I was just such a, a loss. I didn't know what to do and as many writers before me, I turned to art to, to sort of make sense of, of my world which had just been just collapsed. And the other spark... Um, was I, I met a man, I think he, he was a rebound, about six months later, and he, even though it was it was completely inappropriate for me, he became amused. And so it took the, the end of a marriage and the beginning of a fling that, that brought turbulence together. And even when we stopped seeing each other, I continued to write. So, yeah, I think he was, he was instrumental in... in the writing of this book as well. You can, you have in a way, um, and I guess poetry is one of those that, you know, is that ultimate medium of, of personal writing or of translating the personal into metaphor. And you've certainly done it with this book. Uh, you begin with, uh, you've sort of separated all the poems and there are many uh, in this collection, I think 148, if I'm counting correctly. No, no, no 148 I think it was pages. Like 100, uh, it's over 100, I think we'll say. It's over 100. I can't remember, 117 or something. something I, like I think, yeah, I think I may be mixing it up with the page numbers there, but quite a lot. Yeah. Um, yes, so you've, over 100. You've separated them into sections. Uh, the first mm-hmm. is wreckage, the second, chimera, the third, fish, uh, and then I think the last one is turbulence. Um, And I'd love you to talk about each of these sections. They're very distinct. I'm sure the audience can work out what they mean, but I'd love you to describe it. Sure. So wreckage, the first section is very much about the aftermath of my marriage and it just evokes all the confusion and the pain and the hurt that I was feeling at the time. The second part was pretty much a, a poetic diary of this fling that I had with this man. So it's about roughly 30 poems of our entire arc of our relationship from beginning to end. Fish is, the reason why it's called fishing because of obviously, you know, so many fish in the sea. So it's all about online dating. And turbulence, the last section is, I think it was just a catch-all for the turbulence of life in general. So just about loss, loss of people, loss, just, just life becoming 
unsure and sort of just new new beginnings and new new sort of new horizons and just just the uncertainty of of, of life I think the last section so it was it's just a, a general theme and I think that covers the entire book actually turbulence and that's why you that's why it's, it's called turbulence it's just the name that that um yeah that's symbolic of each of the four sections so even though they're quite distinct in each part there's there's a certain there's a sense of turbulence and turmoil and uncertainty and just not knowing what's going to happen but i did end it on a, on a fairly optimistic notion i thought it was important yeah, and of course you did write this in, you know, much of the this was written in a state of turbulence uh, and so yes. I, I'm intrigued as well how you felt when you were reading over the body of work that you've created, um, you know, how you felt about the sort of interlinking themes and um, and how it sort of seemed to, to fit into a collection like this. It wasn't planned, I think. This collection was not planned, you know. I never sat down and thought, right, I'm going to write a poetry book. It just organically evolved and the sections almost discreetly sort of were little discrete units on their own. I didn't plan for it to be in four sections. It just sort of happened that way. So there was no sort of preempting them. I just there were certain moments that I went through um, after the marriage collapse that I felt that I had to work through. And these separate sections, um, yeah, were just the result of that. So I had to obviously write about the marriage stuff up. I didn't want to, I didn't spend that much time writing that section, I think, because it was really painful at the time. And I thought, okay, I need to move on. I didn't want to do the entire collection about my marriage failing because I thought that would be too dark and too depressing. And I really wanted to try and move beyond that. Yes. Hence, you know that was the starting point, but I didn't want it to be the end point as well, or the middle point. I just wanted that was the that was the start. So this collection is post marriage. It's not about the marriage per se. It's about post and everything that happened to me afterwards. Uh, the by far the biggest section of the book is fish, which you know quite often relates to online dating. Um, there's some absolutely wonderful poems in here. Um, in you know in terms of your sort of reaction to what you find when you're out there, um, you know, looking for connections. Trawling. Trawling, <laughs> fishing, some might say. Fishing, um, yes. And I'm just going to, you're going to hear me flicking through the pages of your book, um, which sure. I have to say is quite a thick um, collection given the slim volumes that you usually find with poetry collections. I've, I've dog-eared, I'm sorry to say, Twee, quite a few pages in here as I, I went through to sort of, um, mark out ones that particularly struck me. Um, there's one called Tinderburnt, Bumble, Fumble and OK Stupid and basically in it you sort of, um, you've kind of, it's written like a, a big chunk of prose almost but really it's line after line from things that you've seen on on the various dating apps with a few little bits of commentary from you in between. It starts off, where's my partner in crime? I'm from the School of Hard Knocks, the University of Life. Here for a good time, not a long time, just seeing what the fuss is about. I have no baggage and neither should you. I'm easygoing, fluent in sarcasm, etc. All sort of written up with very little punctuation. It made me laugh out loud, I have to say. There's a lot, let's just say, written particularly um, 
from it's the reaction writers have obviously to write about their experiences and dating apps often get a fair kicking uh, for being transactional and having all of the things wrong with them. Uh, Talk a bit about how you've engaged with it because you very much have wound in in particular your love of writing and engaging linguistically. I really, sorry, I really wanted to write about online dating because I think there have been many feature articles and even books about it, but I didn't really see that many poems about it. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. But I really didn't just want to write about online dating. I had to do it in a way that appealed to me as a writer. And so I did it in a way that, that I think used my love of language. So there are poems in there that are, you know, that, that are called Verb and there's a poem that is inspired by the semicolon called Half Wink and I write about Scrabble. And so there's there's my love of language and all the little sort of building blocks of language, like prepositions and grammar and typography uh, become sort of intertwined with writing about online dating. So that was my way of sort of thinking, okay, I have to, have to write about this, but in a way that is playful and a little bit silly and a little bit cynical. It's not just sort of, this is terrible, I don't want to do this. And it's also, I think there's a lot of sort of uh, erotic nature in my poems as well, but it's done very, I guess, quite discreetly. And there's there's nothing explicit about it. It's more suggestive. Absolutely. I, just, I think a lot of the time is emotion. There's my going through these dating experiences and feeling a lot as well. And I, I think I used the poems to process what I was feeling. It's exactly what I did after the, uh, you know, the aftermath of my marriage and also my five-month fling with that man. I just wrote very quickly after the event, after a date or after, you know, experience that just went really badly. I thought, all right, I'm gonna, I need to sort of, I need to process this. And I, I don't keep a diary, so these poems were, in a way, just poetic diary. So that was the way I, I sort of... I sort of I came to understand how I was feeling and, yeah, it was just a way of just trying to process what was what was going on. I didn't know what I was doing a lot of the time. So I think the poems, these dating poems, were, were just marking my confusion. Mm. And I read back and I just think, God, did I do that? <laughs> so, yeah, there is, as you know, when you read back in your old diaries and you just can't believe you were that stupid. <laughs> yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. I'm broadcasting from home, or rather pre-recording from home, uh, talking to poet and critic Twi On about her new poetry collection, Turbulence, uh, which is quite an epic work uh, that sort of charts the breakdown of her marriage and all that happened after that. Uh, there is another poem that that I uh, captured my interest, which was uh, very close to the end of the collection, which is called Insert Eye Roll Emoji in brackets, Why People Don't Read Modern Poetry. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Because you do quite a lot of your poetry uh, is in a sort of traditional meter, but then you break out suddenly into these yes. into these sort of, it, it just really feels like you um, doing a dance suddenly uh, in your room or like just kind of trying something new. And it's, and it's one of the, one of the really enjoyable aspects of this book. Yeah. This is a poem that you actually have to see on the page. I can't read it out because I think part of the fun is actually sitting, seeing how it is spread out on the page. And I deliberately uh, wrote it because I want to do a piss take on the modern poem because a lot of people don't read contemporary poetry because, and it's true, and I agree with a lot of it, 
is because I think it's esoteric and insular and very highfalutin. And what inspired this particular poem was when I actually read one or online and I just got completely fed up with it because I couldn't understand what the poet was saying. I just, and you know, I'm educated. I'm completely educated. I've got degrees. I've been a critic for 20 years and I could not understand what this poem was trying to say. And so my, my sort of response was, was scathing. It was, uh, so it's funny, but it's scathing at the same time. And it was exactly what I didn't want turbulence to be. I wanted turbulence to be read by people who, who are readers of novels and nonfiction, whatever else, not necessarily poetry, who were readers but who could understand what I was trying to say. They didn't have to know the context, but they'd have to sort of, they would feel something. I wanted bursts of emotion in each poem. And so my little piss take poem was just, I think I was just satirising the form um, and the, the lack of meaning, really. On that note. That was, yeah, that yeah. provoked that poem. Absolutely. And I had a lot of fun writing it too. You know, I think it was very cathartic writing it. Yeah. Uh, on that note, it is. I really do want to delve a little bit into what it's like uh, going from being a critic back to poetry because, you know, obviously uh, one of those things, I, I do a book show here, I read books all the time and talk to authors, I've been a critic myself. Uh, I do yeah. find that I am overly critical of my own writing as a result. How is it uh, coming back to your own work? How do you find letting go of that critical brain? Do you let go of it? I do, actually. I find poetry a release. In my reviews and my features and my interviews with authors, I am far more hard on myself than I am with my poetry because my poetry is written very fast. You know, most of the poems that are in Turbulence are written in about about 15 minutes and I'm not, you know, bragging or anything. That's exactly how quickly I write. And it's only later, you know, sometimes I leave it for a day, sometimes a week, that I come back and edit because it's pure emotion that drives these poems. It's not about form or even, you know, expression or anything or content is, is emotion. I'm trying to get this emotion inside me onto the page so it's done really, really, really quickly. I have no problems. I don't have problems with writing poems at all. I think they come really quickly to me. It's just all the other sort of work work or the journalism work that takes a long time because I think I'm more worried about other people's words that I am faithfully recording what it is that they're trying to, to say in their in their books. I know what I'm trying, trying to say in my own poems. I just need to get it onto the page. Uh, I would love so you. There's a distinct difference, yeah. I would love you to give readers, uh, readers and, uh, sorry, potential readers and listeners an example of one of your poems if you would like to read one for us and if you could introduce the poem as well. Yeah, I'm going to read a poem called Still Life, and this is um, in the section, the second section when I was madly, I wouldn't say in love, I was madly infatuated with this man who inspired this, you know, partly inspired this collection. <clears throat> so, yes, it's called Still Life. How does it feel to see yourself, face, body, actions, stolen, subject turned object, abstract? abstract into concrete. Wisp of emotions, butterfly netted, a flash Polaroid in words, where careless gestures weighted with meaning transmute into art. But the beholder and the muse, a reciprocity of Zen and movement, just you and me, this alchemy, an inexact science, 
a still life contoured in sharp pointed lines that will survive us both when dust is dust, these scraps that bore witness to youth and heat and heedlessness. Yeah, so I found that an interesting poem in a way because throughout our, our fling, he was the muse and I was the artist. You know, I'm basically contravening all these centuries of, of the male being the artist and, and the female being the muse. It was the other way around with us. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a lovely note to leave this uh, this conversation on. Twi, on thank you so much for joining me to talk about your poetry collection today. Great. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. A lonely Yowie heads to a desperate and dateless ball. Bruce, a shark, somehow ends up in a local swimming pool. Strange creatures drop to earth and demand an end to footy. Wayne Marshall's fantastical collection of short stories skewers toxic masculinity, jingoism and nationalism. It turns the world upside down in a way that's incredibly apt in the time of a pandemic. I spoke with Wayne this morning. Wayne Marshall, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me, Mel, under such crazy circumstances. <laughs> yes, we've had quite a morning of it already uh, with <laughs> technology uh, and the audio quality isn't the best, but we're going to try and make the conversation uh, be all worth it. Yes. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, kick off by talking about this, where these stories came from, because there is quite a story behind uh, how you came to write a short story collection. Uh, I'd love you to tell it in your own words. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I've been writing for quite a while um, and I tried a novel as part of a creative writing degree, which uh, didn't work out and I sort of I gave up writing for a while after that. Um, and then in 2012, just after we'd moved out here to Bacchus Marsh um, and we'd had our first uh, child, I was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Um, so a really tough time, but um, sort of as that went on and I'd gone through treatments and then surgery, I felt the need to to write, to have something for myself um, beyond the world of the illness. So that was how I started. I started writing on Friday mornings uh, before I would have chemo treatment. I would get up really early and um, I just started writing with abandon. Um and these are the, the stories that came out. It was a long road from that starting point, but that's how it started. These stories are uh, kind of, I guess they're described as fantastical, uh, and certainly they are that, uh, but also they're very much grounded in a sort of, I guess, very patriarchal Australia, and you are skewering that, uh, you know, with a great comedic eye and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of craziness. I'm not sure how much to give away because uh, there are some twists and turns in the story. I was um, kind of both moved and, um, uh, you know, really moved, I think, in a weird way by the story about a fisherman catching a mermaid. I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying no. that. 
you've managed to get uh, a lot into that story. But, you know, the, the male archetypes that you portray are incredibly unlikable, uh, but you're really uh, not letting them get away with anything and you're taking them down in these really very, very interesting ways, uh, while at the same time not making them two-dimensional characters all the time. I, I would love to talk about where this kind of, where these stories sort of emerge from for you. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, the idea of not making them two-dimensional, of this being not just a total hatchet job on these men and not a total piss tape either was really important uh, to me. So, yes, there's a lot of situations where these guys are, are really um, thrown under the bus and forced to deal with some pretty extreme circumstances. But I wanted to do it in a sympathetic um, way. I wanted to give them depth and I felt like the stories would uh, live and breathe a bit more as a consequence of doing that because, to the end of your question, um, that's my culture and where I'm from that I'm writing about. So I do come to it with a level of sympathy and empathy um, and wanting to absolutely investigate these men. But, um, you know... Yeah, um, you do definitely uh, give a humanist kind of frame to so many of these, especially when they get to move through the sort of many movements of the problems of toxic masculinity and, you know, this kind of jingoistic Australian culture that's obsessed with sport. In a story called Gibson's Bat and Ball, you really kind of lampoon Australia's obsession with sport in an extremely um, excessive way, but but it kind of, uh, without giving too much away, really ends on an incredibly human note. Uh, Please talk to me a little bit about this story in particular. Yeah, well, this is my favourite from the collection, and this took this took all of a few years to write or to get to get right. So it's the story of um, the rise and fall of uh, an Australian sports theme park uh, in Melbourne in the nineteen nineties, um, and it goes through uh, four different iterations of being a place that basically just honours sport, honours the way that Australian society loves sport, to questioning it. Um, but at the bottom of it, it is about a, the troubled relationship between a father and a son, the father who, to whom sport is everything, and the son to whom, um, who starts to question that and to whom art has an appeal. And for me, in my experience of the Australian sport culture, art and sport don't speak to each other um, that much. And so I really wanted to investigate that, but it was very important that underpinning the story was, yeah, as you say, a very human relationship between the father and the son. And after the fallout of what happens at the theme park, the moment in the backyard where they connect, um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away either, but um, I really felt that was really poignant and um, I'm glad that the story went to that level. Another story that I found oddly very touching was a story about uh, a shark that is named Bruce uh, <laughs> that, that winds up in a country town swimming pool. Tell me about the origins of that story. It's very short, but it's... Yes, yes, that's just that's the shortest um, story in the collection. Um, you know, I think it was pretty basic. I was just swimming with one of my daughters um, at the local, local swimming pool and I, it was just a what-if 
what if a fin rose out of the water um, and 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 the pool was occupied, haunted by a shark that had mysteriously arrived? Um, that was one of the earlier stories I wrote for the collection um, and was published as part of the Seizure Flashes series, stories under 500 words. Um, yeah, that was just a bit of fun. I think that's a really fun story and it, it has a lot of local stuff that's specific to Bacchus Marsh. So at the Bacchus Marsh launch for Sherl, I read that story aloud and, um, yeah, there are a lot of local landmarks mentioned in it. So I think people um, specifically there really enjoyed that one. Yeah. I can sort of feel throughout this collection your, you know, you sort of both like really balancing that line of uh, finding the humour and the kind of absurdity in all of it and really trying to find a very human emotional core. I'm really interested in how you went about doing that. Through a lot of drafting, I think. <laughs> um, initially, the stories upon first, second, third draft, they're very, um, the craziness, the absurdity is at the forefront. Um, and in later drafts through, you know, four, six, five, six, seven, eight, nine is, is really about layering a depth of emotion to these very crazy situations um, that just takes time and really just sinking, uh, sinking into the story at a deeper level from, for me. Um, and as the collection went on, I, I found that more and more important to have a real emotional depth to the stories. Um, yeah, I, I love stories that are experimental or, or crazy in tone, but have a heart, have heart beneath them. Um, and uh, yes, that was what, it took a long time, but that was what I was going for. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, uh, and I'm talking to Wayne Marshall about his short story collection, Sherl. As you can probably hear from the audio quality, uh, <laughs> this is the recorded from home edition, but we are determined uh, to still still bring you some excellent um, interviews, and uh, certainly this is one of them. Uh, Wayne, I'm I'm really, um, you know, kind of thinking specifically a book like this seems highly appropriate for the time that we've found ourselves in. You know, a sudden, completely unexpected disruption has made us relook at everything that we thought was a, a norm. That is very much one of the underpinnings, I guess, of, of your writing style. Have you had pause to reflect upon this recently? Yeah, well, um, I have, I, so, so there's one story in the collection that's called A Year Without Footy, which has um, all of a sudden become very topical with the football season um, cancelled, all sports cancelled. Um, and, and that idea of disruption runs throughout the book, really. There are a few prohibitions um, set in rural Australian towns. The first is, as I mentioned, a football prohibition um, enforced by fish-based aliens that arrive and invade an Australian town. And the second is a government-forced alcohol ban. So those two things, those two disruptions were to um, to look more closely at those things, um, which now in a time of just widespread shutdown, lockdown, um, yeah, I think it's oddly um, prescient and uh, certainly wasn't thinking it at the time. Um, I just wanted to get at these aspects of my culture 
through the disruptions, but yeah, it's become real. So it's really weird. It's a really, it's a, it's a mixed bag in terms of whether or not the main um, protagonists learn something from the disruption to their experience. Um, so, you know, certainly in the story about the, the fisherman, the fisherman catching uh, a mermaid, you really get the sense of a, of a change in that person, of them really seeing the world differently and um, and shifting their perspective to a more humane one. Uh, but in other stories, uh, for example, the one, uh, your sort of eponymous story, Sherl, uh, you gather that the, um, that the protagonist who, let's just say, is a... <laughs> So pretty much straight up misogynist, um, yeah. really kind of uh, doesn't uh, get it. But you know, I guess that the flaws in their thinking about women is is very much exposed from that. Did you very much want to kind of uh, give that sort of perspective of how you know trenchant this cult culture can be? I'm interested in why you chose uh, to represent things that way. Yeah, sure. Um, oh, so, what did I choose to? So I grew up um, out of suburban Victoria, out of suburban Melbourne, um, in a town that basically revolved around a football club. And so the relationship stuff, men and women, all the stuff that's in the book is stuff that I witnessed out there. And, and when I came to writing, it wasn't so much that I wasn't driven like in a in a way that a say an essay writer might be driven to put down these these themes. They just came to me in the stories and the ideas, the sort of the crazy images, the absurd things came to me first. And as I was mentioning before, through successive drafts, a depth came that I realized that these were the things that I was looking at as to whether that thing you mentioned about whether the characters change. Um, I think in that story in particular, which is um, a night out, I think the irony is that thick, that even though the character doesn't change, the sort of underlying themes that are being said are pretty clear, mm. if, that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's absolutely clear. I, I guess it's sort of an interesting time, isn't it, because you hope that a disruption does create a positive change uh, in some ways, but I, I feel like it's a lot more realistic what you portrayed is that some people will really dig deeper into their ways of doing and thinking um, things, you know, especially uh when a disruption happens and others will will let that have an effect on them that, that makes them look at the world differently. Um, I guess in a sense a character does look at the world differently there, but it's one that sort of reinforces their worldview. I, I felt like it was a very perceptive sort of approach. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, that, that took a long time to get right as well, that story of exactly. So the story of the two men coming together with a very weird new girlfriend how how the protagonist and the narrator would, would react and which direction the story would go. I tried multiple things and it wasn't it took a long time to feel to feel right the way that it ended there. It is a very strange ending and you're right that the that sort of reinforces a way that reinforces the view of that man, but it was just an ending that felt felt intuitively right, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, there were another couple of stories I do want to mention in particular. The Phoenix Rising was one that I quite enjoyed. I, I know we're talking in very vague terms about some of the stories, but it's literally a lot of uh, the stories do rely on the element of surprise or or throwing the unexpected at you, and I don't want to spoil that. Um, 
and this is probably one of them, but it's uh, it sort of starts one way and then <laughs> increasingly gets bizarre. You know, it, it is kind of a um, reminiscent of uh, you know of cer- of a certain film that I'm thinking of. Um, but where did that one particularly come from? Yeah, so that story was really late in the piece. Um, I, I I'd signed with a firm after being shortlisted for the Victoria Friends Lyric Award for an unpublished manuscript, and um, the, the manuscript was quite slim. It was only 37,000 words. So the idea was that I was going to write four new stories in four months, which for me was I'd written one story in the last year. So I had to really fire out a bunch of stories, and The Phoenix Rising was one of those. Um, where did the idea come from? So it, it starts uh, with a cancer diagnosis, which, of course, from my background is um, you know something I've experienced, but it turns into something... Completely other, uh, completely other, and it was just that idea of the theatricality of it. And I had, I mean, this is probably going to give give it away a little bit, but I was on a plane just before I'd written that story, and there was one of those in-flight magazines with lots of new agey type of stuff, retreats, etc. And um, on that page was a couple. Very mid-twenties, very good-looking, white couple, all in white, in hospital gowns, with blankets over their knees, hooked up to IV drips, being fed these, you know, these beautiful cocktail of vitamins. And that was something that people were going out and paying lots of money for to go experience. I thought that was just really bizarre, that sort of fetishising of illness like that so that was kind of the direction that the story went down yes and then veered a hard left which I I think is really great I I think uh, it seems fitting then to end our chat on uh, at the end of the book um, with a weekend in Albury which was quite moving uh, and is the uh you know, the only uh, story in the collection that's overtly um, autobiographical or is it Uh, tell me about that final story yeah, so this it's the final story in the book, and it was the final story that I wrote for the book. Um, the deadline that I just mentioned had come down to a few weeks to go until I needed to submit all my new stories to a firm. And I'd been toying with an idea about an Australian female writer called Wendy Alice Thompson for quite a while, A, because it interested me, but B, I wanted to address, address the... Um, gender imbalance in the book. It's, it's a really blokey book um, and I wanted to do something about that. And so I've been writing all different stories about an Australia, sort of an unknown Australian writer um, and it wasn't quite working. And then one day I was just out walking with my daughter um, and the voice of putting, casting it as myself as kind of a faux um, biographical history, but it, with that Australian writer um, came to me, um, pitching it as I need one story to go, time's running out, what am I going to write about? I'm going to write about uh, my mum and dad um, breaking up when I was uh, 15. Somehow that coalesced with the story of Wendy Alice Thompson uh, and it came together. It was the fastest story that I've written. It's one of the longest. And it just came out right. It wasn't until 
a few drafts later that I started to worry about all the personal family stuff that I put in and to think if that was an okay thing to have gone and done. So I spoke to my mum in particular about it and uh, it was a huge relief when she gave me the okay to um, release that story. Yeah. Look, it's a, it's a really, it's sort of great in a way because you're exposing the way writers work and um, mythologize and use life and wind in fantastical elements, um, but making it sort of plausible at the same time, which is, you know, one of the, the kind of curiosities of that story in a collection like this, because while the other stories are overtly fantastical, this one is more of a sort of realist fiction writer's fantastical yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the aim of all of it by the end. The fantastical stuff, yeah, there's lots of it, but I want all of it to feel real. A story to be successful for me, it has to feel real no matter how far out it gets. And even though there's no really fantastical stuff, as you say, in Weekend in Aubrey, the kind of the structure of it is really weird and playful and stuff, so it feels like there's an almost other non-realist approach structurally rather than in terms of the, the, the content. Um, so, yeah, it was important to get those grounding details right so it felt real to me. You keep uh, asking the uh, the reader to sort of enter into the process of, of story-making and myth-making. It's, you know, it's really quite a delight to read. Oh, thank you. Um, on that note, uh, it looks like we've we've run out of time today, uh, Wayne. I I'm very much going to be um, reading through your collection again, um, just to sort of see any that I may have gone over too quickly. Um, I'm likely to have quite a bit of time to do that <laughs> as well. Um, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. No worries, Mel. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Pleasure. That was Wayne Marshall discussing his short story collection, Sherl, out now. Now it's time for a couple of special segments, Meters for Launch and Comfort Reads. Today's Comfort Read is from Marketing and Publicity Director at Wakefield Press, bookseller at Imprints in Adelaide, and my dearest friend, Joe Case. Joe writes, When I was in my mid-twenties, I used to read Nick Earle's Zigzag Street after every breakup, which happened about six times a year. Zigzag Street follows Richard, who lives in a house he's meant to be renovating in exchange for free rent. He talks mainly to a cat named Greg and compulsively listens to the Smiths The Queen is Dead, a gift from the long-term girlfriend who dumped, or as he says, trashed him. He's stuck, stubbornly clinging to grief, but he stumbles his way out. A meet-cute is involved, but the book's not about the right partner transforming your life. Richard mainly makes it because of a network of kind friends and co-workers who are stubbornly there for him. I'm making it sound glum, but it's actually not. It's a comedy, which is what makes it cheering. But what makes it deeply comforting is how it inhabits the headspace you're in after being trashed, when you lose not just your relationship, but who you were in it. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm like anymore. Some days it seems I only have a past and at the end of the past I was set adrift somewhere on some terrible flat sea that seems to go on and on without interruption. Yep, reading Zigzag Street, following Richard on his mishap-strewn upward trajectory, I always felt comforted that it would eventually somehow all turn out okay 
Thank you so much for that lovely piece, Joe Case. And uh, the book that Joe was referring to there is Nick Earl's Zigzag Street. So that might be one to get your hands on. And today's Meet Me for Launch is from South Australian author Poppy Nwasu. Poppy, author of award-nominated young adult novel Waking Up Alice Dyson, today launches Taking Down Evelyn Tate. This young adult novel follows impulsive Lottie, a heavy metal fan and frequent visitor to the principal's office who finds herself in even more trouble than usual. Her best friend Grace has dropped a bombshell. She's dating Lottie's mortal enemy, good girl Evelyn Tate. So Lottie vows revenge and devises a plan to beat Evelyn at her own good girl game. Obviously, hijinks ensue. Taking Down Evelyn Tate is a story about family, friends and embracing who you are, even if that person is kind of weird. So if you're looking for something light, fun and positive, this book might be the one for you or a young person in your life. Why not ask if your local bookshop can deliver a copy to you today? That's all we have time for today, I'm afraid. I'd like to thank my guests, Twee On, author of Poetry Collection Turbulence, and Way Marshall, author of Shell. I'd also like to thank Jo Case, my bestie, uh, for her lovely comfort reads, and also uh, Poppy Nwasu for writing in to let us know about her new young adult novel, Taking Down Evelyn Tate. If you want to be listed or to have your works considered for Meet Me for Launch, email me at backstoryrrr at gmail.com. Also, if you have an excellent comfort read, tell me all about it. Email me at that same address, backstoryrrr.org.au. So that's it for the show. But just a reminder that April Subscriber Amnesty is happening now, our theme, Your Station in Isolation. We really need your help to keep afloat. So head to rrr.org.au forward slash subscribe or rrr.org.au forward slash donate and give what you can. Hashtag Your Station in Isolation. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.